0: Uh, greetings, dear listeners. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, in the meantime, um, we're very excited to have a uh, um, a returning guest here. And the reason why you're hearing Hail to the Chief underneath this intro is because he in all likelihood will be the uh, next president of the American Enterprise Institute. I kid. I kid. I kid. Um, but we have Ben Sass, a senator from uh, Nebraska, and the one who left. Um, the infamous episode 11, the most covered in somebody else's blood, but we won't talk about that right now. Ben, great to have you here. Good to be back. I didn't know we were going to start with blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the last time you were on, we talked about uh, peeing and corn stalks, so we're not going to... I think
1: it's an improvement. Probation was long. I think you had me on episodes one, three, and five, and then urination and cornfields came up, and then I was banished. I think, I think you put me on a 20-episode probation. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, let's be fair. I mean, the, the lacuna...
0: Your 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 exile has was more self imposed than for me. I mean, uh, let's start with
1: the fact that you're no longer a Twitter guy. What is that about? Uh, yeah, so I'm not I'm not no longer forever, but I'm on a Sabbath. Oh. So I we tend to was turn it a off Lent thing. No, 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 no. We turn off social media at our house mm-hmm. on Sundays usually. So Saturday night we try to become focused on where we are and and turn off distance. We also have teenage kids, and we impose this on them. So Christmas week, we decided, <clears throat> pardon me, to go... Um, the whole holiday weekend and December 27 and 28 and 29 came and I still hadn't gone back to Twitter and it just felt really great. Uh-huh. And so now I'm four months into my uh, catharsis uh-huh. and I'm sure I'll come back. But I've been thinking about what I miss about it for the good and what I'm happy to have been kind of weaned from. So I, I know I'm going to come back, but the social media fast has been uh, kind of useful, though accidental in origin. Now, it's from Facebook, too. I've never really done yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not on I'm, Facebook. So I'm under se- I'm under that. 70. OK, I don't know if that's true about the demographics, but but so what do you miss from not being on Twitter? So I miss um, having my own editors in the sense of who is selecting news for me in the Uh morning. So I think one of the most useful parts about Twitter in my life was I could get to the place where I could pick my favorite 20 or 30 writers in the world and I could pull them together and I could find five or 10 or 15 new ones any day or week. And they were found for me by other people that I followed. I only follow a couple hundred people. And so they functionally were my acquisitions editors. And that was great both for short form pieces and for long form pieces. I think a lot a lot about the future of work and the future of war. And a lot of the new scholars and thinkers and, and long-form journalists that I found in those spaces, I found because of people I follow on Twitter. I miss the humor. There are are some actually really funny people. Uh, I won't act like I'm pandering, but uh, people like you uh, that exist on Twitter make it sort of a place that I kind of miss going to. Pull my finger. I miss (laughs) (laughs) it. Fortunately, there are no sound effects on Twitter. Uh, There there are a whole bunch of things I miss about uh, the augmentation of physical embodied relationships. So a bunch of my college roommates, we basically use Twitter as public-facing email. And so there are things that we do that may look like they're for a broad audience, but really they're just. 15 of us that have some inside joke that we're going back to from 1993. Um, and I miss live events. So I miss Twitter during sporting events, Husker football. I mean, yeah. there hasn't been a Husker football game except a bowl, which we weren't in, and you don't know sports, so we'll move on. <laughs> it's not that there's no sports. It's just that I, just,
0: I, I don't have an enormous amount to contribute just just for the record, and this is more for the future listeners or the future guests of this podcast who are listening and trying to take notes about how to be on here. When I ask you what you miss most about Twitter when you've t- gone on a, a, a Twitter sabbatical is the first thing should be pictures of my dogs um, or videos of my dogs. And then you can get into the curated uh, information flow and all of the rest. I just want to put that out there. You know, you're fine. But I just, you know, I just want to put that out there. So... I guess you were just in Asia what, where, where, because, again, was it, is it tr- trying to figure out what was beyond extradition? I mean, what was the... Yeah.
1: I, I, so I was in uh, a whole bunch of places in China, and then I spent a little bit of time on the North Korean border from the, the north, Dendong, mm-hmm. and from the south uh, at the DMZ. Um, but really, I've been thinking about China issues for the last year and a half, so I'm trying to do it a little more intentionally. So they've got... Uh, five Silicon Valleys, if you will. And I think we're in a long-term tech race, and I don't think we have very clear categories for how to think about this moment. Uh, again, future of war is a lot of what I'm thinking about, but also future of work stuff. Um, they've got a bunch of companies that are bigger than anything we know in the digital space, and it's it's kind of crazy because of how recently this came about. Mm-hmm. So I was in Shenzhen and in Hangzhou, which are essentially two of their Silicon Valleys, and they just have some giant tech companies. Imagine combining Facebook with like one-third of our bank banking sector, yeah. that's ten cent. Imagine combining eBay and Amazon and Whole Foods as if Whole Foods was much, much bigger as a sort of basic grocery store chain in everybody's life. That's Alibaba. And so I've, I've been thinking a lot about the future of big tech. Okay. So um,
0: <clears throat> because friction is a key part of the drama of the exciting world of podcasting, when I hear you talk about the future of war and how we're in a sort of a tech race with, with China, I get my... Um, anti Tom Friedman hackles up because I'm very much against this sort of Remember Barack Obama would go around talking about Sputnik moment Mm -hmm. and we have to win the brain race against uh, the Chinese and and all of that to what so I know you're a free market guy so to what extent as a free market guy can the government think about being in a tech race with China that doesn't eventually elide into some sort of industrial policy, moral equivalent of war garbage or some really bad
1: analogies
0: from the Cold War?
1: Yeah, I think it's great questions, and I don't have a settled view. I really am. I'm sort of 18 months and thinking through some of this stuff, and I don't have a settled view yet, but I I could argue both sides of it in a way. Uh, So Michael Pillsbury has the book, The 100-Year Marathon, which I highly recommend to people, and the stuff that you're worried about would probably flow from an argument like his, and I'm fairly sympathetic to his argument that just at the level of... Um, maybe back up. You're right. I'm a market guy, and I believe in decentralized decision-making and human innovation and, and all that people can produce when they innovate and central planning and command and control systems don't work nearly as well as decentralized systems for almost everything. So I believe that as a kind of you know, theological, anthropological matter and as a historical economic development matter. And yet... I'm really glad the Soviets didn't have first-strike nuclear capabilities in 1945, 46, 47. Um, A whole bunch of things happened where we got to a place where nuclear policy could believe mutually assured destruction was going to give stability to the world. I'm glad we had nukes before they did. Mm -hmm. And you could imagine a world where future digital tools, uh, if the Chinese had them before we did, um, there's a whole bunch of things that worry me about that. And I think we should be mindful of that at the level of policy. And so the the argument in 100-Year Marathon is essentially that Mao in 1949 decided he wanted China to dominate the earth by 2049. Um, and there's sort of a 25-year planning process, uh, 20 cycles of five-year planning processes from there. And there are a whole bunch of things happening now in the digital revolution where the U.S. is not really ahead, either in the private sector or certainly governmentally. And I think the kind of techno-mercantilist moment we're at, digital mercantilism, there's a whole bunch of stuff where we have to recognize the asymmetry of where we are in cyber policy. The Chinese government and Chinese nominally private sector institutions can hack U.S. companies and the information that they get can be handed back and forth between government and nominally private sector. The U.S. government doesn't have any ability or desire or will to go hack private sector Again, Mm -hmm. nominally private sector Chinese companies, because what will we do with the information? We're not going to hand it to a specific private sector company in the U.S. So our need to play defense in cyber battle is much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. because we believe in a private sector, not a mercantilist government industry alliance. I think there are problems there that we have to think through. I don't think we've thought them through clearly. And I think there are big tech moments happening that we're not mindful of. The Chinese are jumping, for instance, from a cash society straight to a cashless and face pay mm-hmm. uh, society. They've, they're not going through a credit card phase. And I think it's, it's new to most Americans to think of China as having lots more middle-class people than we have. Right. Because they've still got hundreds of millions of poor people people, you don't pause to think, oh, well, they actually have 300 million middle class people and we've got more like 225 million uh, middle class people. And if you've got a whole bunch more STEM, if you've got a whole bunch more coding and math and science and engineering and R&D investment, there are some problems that worry me that there could be situations like us being behind in a big race in 1946. That's a little scary.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'll just, I'll push back a little bit
1: and this is all off the top of my head because I and we're going to go down this way, but um, me neither. <laughs> um, I'm just back. I'm still jet lagged, so anything I say, I have the right to revise when I'm awake.
0: So, um, uh, first of all, I, 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 I'm always skeptical when I hear 25-year plan, right? Uh, I, I think back to um, you know, I was a young policy, larval policy guy here at AEI in the early 1990s when there was still all this envy of midi in japan and um remember there's that great scene in um uh, what's the clint eastwood movie where he's the secret service agent um in the line of fire in the line of fire where renee russo Rene russo and who's the assassin guy i don't care let's talk john about Ma- renee russo some more. <laughs> john- and john malkovich is pretending to be this big donor right and he goes in america they f- they only plan for the next quarter in japan they plan for the next quarter century. And all the guys at this table are like, oh, we need your thinking in the White House. This is brilliant. And it's garbage, right? I mean, I'm a big Hayek knowledge problem guy. The idea that you can plan 25 years in the future or that China is opera this idea – again, I haven't read the book that you're talking about, and I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff in it, right? But um, it was not Mao's plan that uh, uh, 30-something-odd years later, 40-something-odd years later – that Deng Xiaoping would very reluctantly embrace market incentives, right? I mean, it was Mao's right. idea to do collectivization and, and murder a whole bunch of people. And whenever I talk to college students about this, you know, the thing I always, you know, drives me crazy about Tom Friedman and others is they have, there's this fetishization of, of, of what they call, what we used to call, authoritarian capitalism, yeah. right? And so, in China, they try to make collectivism work. and And, I, and, and when it doesn't, as a last resort, and I really mean a last resort, because first they killed 60 million of their own people, right? And then they're like, right. damn, not even that worked. So, um, let's do uh, markets. Crappy, corrupt, opaque, cronyist markets, but still market systems, right? They start to implement them in 78, and boom, the entire country starts to take off like wildfire. Hundreds of millions of people can eat meat for the first time, you know, uh, have indoor plumbing, electricity, you get this middle class now, you know, a quarter century later that's so huge. And, So many technocrats in the West, just like they did with Mussolini, just like they did with the Soviet Union, they look at all of this and they say, wow, it must have been the authoritarianism. And it's garbage. Right. And so um, the idea that you can plan all of this stuff, I'm very skeptical. Where I agree with you or where I have my concerns is the stuff that they're doing as a matter of authoritarianism in China these days is really scary to me. The the facial recognition stuff, your sort of civic credit score, whatever right, they're calling right. it, that stuff is really, really creepy to me. And as a guy who's against teleology, right, I, I don't think there's a right side of history. I don't think that there's any, any cold, in, impersonal forces guiding the universe, or at least you can't act that way. People have always said that technology and markets and all these things are always going to be liberating. Maybe markets are. But technology isn't necessarily liberating. For a long time, it seemed like technology was on the side of Big Brother. Then it seemed, oh no, no, look, technology is, is liberating. Everyone's free. It's great. Printing presses and Xerox machines and Twitter—they're all the same thing. They liberate in humanity. And now you look at China, and technology it turns out it's it's, it's not liberating, mm-hmm. right? But I guess my biggest problem with the prediction that China is going to stay the course—and it may, it absolutely may—is that if the things that led to the financial crisis in the United States in two thousand eight are problems for everybody, right? Opaqueness, uh, bad capital, heavy leverage, uh, unreliable statistics, corrupt you know political class. China has got all of those things in spades, plus it's got this demographic time bomb that says that they're going to get old before they truly get rich. And you talk to... Hence the end of the one-child policy. Right. But you talk to a lot of people, a lot of China experts, and I haven't been there. People say, you know, that as, as afraid as people are of the Communist Party, the Communist Party is more afraid of the people. <laughs> and And so this idea that we're going to make it to 2049 without some radical implosion of all of these
1: factors or um, I'm just very skeptical.
0: I don't know if it's going to get better or worse, but I'm just very skeptical.
1: Yes. Really great stuff. And I want to reiterate that I'm not settled on this either, but I think there are three different big bundles in what you said. Number one is a sort of basic anthropological claim about human dignity spurring innovation in ways that central planning never can. Three cheers and amen. Absolutely true. Number two, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening with the digital surveillance state over there that is scary in ways that is partly Orwellian in terms of how willing people are to be drugged by it. So Hema Markets, imagine the Whole Foods side of, uh, of an Amazon play. They say that among the Chinese middle class, uh, 80% of people at 4 o'clock every day don't know where or what they're going to eat that night. And so they want to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. The way they solve that problem with the integration of essentially Uber Eats, distribution, really mobile web stuff – and the citizen score that you talked about right. is kind of crazy. Like you can either order online or you can walk into a market and check some scan SKU code that you want this thing. And in either case, you can get it within 60 seconds. Yeah. And then as you walk out, because they've just skipped right over credit cards, you literally just stick your face in a little window and you keep on moving and it takes a picture of your face and it knows that you're credit worthy and it debits your account. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff there that is so numbing to people that consumerism is more important than a grand Philosophical view of long term political theory Mm -hmm. in ways that scare the crap out of me. So I agree with you, and yet the FinTech, the financial tech sector there is. You know, years ahead of us in a whole bunch of ways that I don't think Americans think about. Mm-hmm. We're very complacent. And so my my big point, the third point, which is to, to push back against you a little bit, it isn't so much that I think their system is so magical. It's that I think our system is so complacent yeah. about the public-private hybrid that we've got lots and lots of problems. DOD can't procure anything in a rational way right now. And we've transitioned from industrial era war to digital and cyber war, and we have no ability to think about what we need to rebuild in our governmental processes. And so their planning systems, the stuff you called BS about thinking 25 years ahead, Mm -hmm. fair enough. And yet they're way better than ours about how they're running military acquisition planning. Mm -hmm. Another way of saying that is there's no Moore's law at the Pentagon right now, and there should be. We can lose a particular drone in Afghanistan, and it costs a couple million dollars to replace it on some leg contract from 18 years ago with some big clunky defense contractor and you can do an experiment right now at DIUX, the kind of you know, the, the digital era DARPA in Silicon Valley that, um, that DOD has sent up and you can say hey dude here's 10,000 bucks you got 10 days you can only shop at best buy see what you can do and we can go recreate that 2 or 3 million dollar drone with right. 10,000 bucks in 10 days we don't acquire that way guess what china does yeah. they're leapfrogging us in all sorts of technology stuff where they're nimble for the digital era and we're not yeah. so my sort of looking at them as a counterpoint is not you know being enthralled by a command system it's saying basic governmental functions like planning for war we're not doing it well, they're doing it in yep. ways that are no. pretty compelling. That that sounds plausible to me. And, you know, it seems to me we could, for all I know, this is
0: apocryphal, but when someone once told me the story about Israel, you know, it always, it's, what's that old saying, you know, nothing focuses the mind like being shot at, right? Nothing trims bureaucracy more than the, the idea that you're going to be invaded from six different sides, right? Yeah. And so someone once told me this story, um, I sh- it may be apocryphal, but that some American contractor wanted to sell Israel some rear-facing radar thing for dogfights that was crazy, $10 million upgrade per plane, whatever. And Israel looked at the technology and they thought about it, whatever, and they said, no, we're not going to do it. And instead, they put $20 uh, side view mirrors on the sides of their jets (laughs) that did the exact same thing. And, you know, it reminds me... That's some crazy guerrilla tape, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. Charles Murray, you know, made this, talks about how... One of the few bureaucracies that actually had that mindset was the Apollo space program. Because back then, there was a sign up. There was Again, it was a race against the Soviet Union. And I I was just saying how I don't want to get into these bad Cold War analogies. But they had a sign on the wall that says you can waste anything but time. And I'm not sure I like that ethos for the Pentagon. I also don't want to waste money. But that ethos is still better
1: than what we've got now, which is waste time and money. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You've got a whole bunch of the tech, you know, billionaire community that's a little bit interested in the defense space because they're not so crazy libertarian that they think you're never going to need... They're not anarchists. They know the nation state has purposes and one of them is to protect the people in the event of big catastrophic war. And a whole bunch of these guys have been just looking at how bad our acquisition systems are. And they think that the Pentagon is a terribly... Dysfunctional, sure. you know, building the pla- the place itself is hideous and not that useful with the five bands of corridors and everything. Right. And yet, you can't replace it today. Why can't we built it in fifteen months? Why can't you replace it? Because we couldn't build something both better and faster and cheaper. So right. there's no logic to replace it, even though everybody thinks it's obsolete. All through our weapon systems, you've got the same kind of problem.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Kind of you rem- couldn't do the Manhattan Project today. Why is that? Yeah. I think it's because you can go from zero to one bureaucracy in a clunky way, even in a monopolistic governmental system. It's really hard to go from a bad bureaucracy to a better or a new bureaucracy until you have a crisis to focus the mind.
0: No, I think that's right.
1: And, and I, I, I I, hate the phrase, a crisis is
0: a terrible thing to waste. I, I hate the mindset that as someone who's disliked the moral equivalent of war argument that you get from William James going forward, it bothers me. At the same time, there's never been a bureaucrat who ever said, after a long study and thought, one of the first things we need to do is get rid of my job. You know? right. <laughs> it's always somebody else's job, which is why all these jobs should be term. I agree with that. I agree with that. My my dad used to have a theory that he wanted to go through the government bureaucracies with a with a post-it notepad and just have A's and B's on it and just slap down. A, B, A, B across every desk and then flip a coin and say, hey, the A's are fired, (laughs) which I always thought had some appeal to it.
1: You know, a lot of these people who are hyper organizational freaks in their home, they do this spring cleaning thing where you take all the clothes in your closet and you reverse the hangers. So they're facing out at you because when you're changing clothes at night or when you're getting dressed, you always put your hanger back on the easy way. You're not going to reach around and do it. And so at the end of 12 months, you can just look and see all the clothes that you've never worn and you have a pre-commitment with your spouse that we're taking all that stuff to goodwill. there's no such process anywhere in a governmental bureaucracy. right?
0: Well, I mean, and there are a bunch of books, you know, because you have the, the Mansur Olson problem of sclerosis of government, right? Get, and then there are a whole bunch of books that say the only way you can leapfrog this is total devastation and war, um, which is not a great option for policymakers. <laughs> um, it's not a great campaign slogan. Yeah, yeah. It probably doesn't play in Nebraska. All right. So two thoughts, quick. One, isn't one solution to the cyber stuff, since it is a form of war, right, is to treat it as a form of war and say, you hack us... You know, if if the Chinese or the Russians sent frogmen into Washington, right, and they broke into one of our installations, we would consider that an act of war. Mm -hmm. But because they can do it digitally with ones and zeros from 5,000 miles or 10,000 miles away, we think of it as some other category, right? Why not say, hey, look, we're going to treat acts of incursion into our sovereignty equally. And if you do it with guns in the middle of the night, or if you do it with, you know, you know uh, computers, we're going we're gonna to treat it the same way. Wouldn't that help?
1: Yeah. So I am in favor of us developing our cyber doctrine to the level that we would say there are definitely circumstances where we would have a kinetic response to a cyber attack. Right. I think there are two big reasons why we haven't done it. I mean, maybe the first is, let's just set the table. And I, I'm, I'm pretty new in this stuff, but I've been, I've been thinking about this more than anything else the last 12 to 18 months. When you had conventional war and nuclear war, at the moment where one side had nuclear capabilities, there was really no need to fight a conventional war because nukes were going to trump everything. And you had all the power then. Once your, uh, once your opponent got nuclear weapons as well, now the nukes cancel out and neither side can use them because there's mutually right. assured destruction. So conventional weapon is the thing that would happen again because neither side's going to be able to use the nukes. But as an entity that has nukes versus one that doesn't, there's no need for a conventional war. I think what's happened is a third domain of war has been created created, which is cyber. And the first mover advantages there are sort of like first mover advantages in nukes, except they're not as binary. You can do incremental stuff. But once both sides knew that cyber could be used in really, really mega destructive ways, there might be a doctrinal thought that we'd work out that makes it a little bit analogous to the arrival of nuclear age Mm -hmm. against conventional war. But what's happened now is the U.S. has so much more underbelly because we've got more electricity than anybody else in the world. So everything is asymmetric against us and that we have more to defend. And because we're a private sector system, where most of all that's interesting here is in civil society or is in the corporate world, not in government when other command and control systems Russia and China are willing to hack us we don't have the same ability to respond by hacking the same things and so I think we need to take the step with all sorts of caveats and and caution we need to take the step of letting people know there would be kinetic response to cyber attack at some point the problem is the gray space about what defines a cyber attack versus mere information exploration is really really gray and that's what's so disastrous about the way the media I know neither of us have uh, had great desire to jump into Trump conversation here. But one of the things that's so painful about the short-term way the media covers everything about the 2016 election is it's always immediately about Trump, and really this is a Russia investigation, and Russia is proxy for the long-term gray space hybrid war that China plans to be able to wage. And what they want to do is make you a little bit pregnant six months in the rearview mirror before you understand what's happened. And so when you go in and you steal information, or when you go and you explore inside the energy grid, but there's been no damage, really darn hard for us to call that an act of war and respond with something kinetic. Well, what Putin plans to do is after he explores the energy grid for a whole bunch of times, and doesn't damage anything but merely with snooping, then he's going to do $80 or $503 of damage. And so now you're going to go, wait a minute, are we going to go to war over 500 bucks? I mean, he's been in our systems for 18 months. Now they accidentally broke some little circuit somewhere. It's no big deal. And they want to get to the place where we're so complacent that we're pregnant in the rearview mirror before we ever know how to respond. And our society right now is so divided, we don't even know how to think about this next generation of gray hybrid war.
0: Yeah, so uh, Jack is going to do the chart of making pregnant in the rear-view mirror, six months behind metaphor work on paper. Um, because
1: it's a complicated. It's a one. chart that requires way more <laughs> diagramming than is fit for a family audience.
0: Um, no, look, I, I think that all makes an enormous amount of sense. I, and Because I may not have this opportunity again for a long time, I'm going to go to one of my long, long-standing kind of weird obsessions, okay? Uh, long-time readers of mine know um, bullfighting. Here it comes. No, no bullfighting. That's not. A, that's a new one. Uh, one of my oldest ones is airborne laser volcano lancing. That we need to sort of it'll take off the pressure from the the calderas and various things. But that's a different one. <laughs> this one, which has backing from, and Could I you name like six or seven more that we're not going to do because I think these will be fun. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I re- I'm going to bring this up with Ross Dowthit on the next podcast. I want I want the Vatican to have armies again. Um, and if not armies, then at least papal ninjas, and I've been writing about this for 20 years. So I'm a reformational
1: guy, and we have this whole two kingdoms doctrine right now, and, and this this idea of arming different European churches, it's complicated. I, I understand it's complicated, but if we're going to turn
0: the UN into a, a, a secular army of peacekeepers based upon who end up being corrupted because the people we actually use, the blue helmets that we actually use tend to be from fairly crapulent countries. and Did you say crapulent? I did. It's okay. a word. Yeah. Um, actually, they're not from crapulent countries because crapulence means to wallow in your own richness and luxury and they're actually from uh the uh, they're they're actually from sort of impoverished
1: countries who are doing it for the money and they tend to act like mercenaries on my bingo card I just want to be clear I did have wallow for today's podcast Excellent. but I didn't think we were going to end at luxurious countries so I um, still lose so
0: uh so if at least the swiss army is there appealing to a, a a higher order anyway we could we can go down memory lane of all of my weird quirky things another time but I uh, I believe it's Jeremy Rabkin great legal thinker was the first guy to ever float this idea past me and I I I've been obsessed with it minorly ever since. In the world of cyber war, piracy, all of that kind of stuff, there's actually a provision in the Constitution for dealing with acts of piracy. It's called Letters of Mark. And we could establish in some way privateers, give people a wink and a nod, some of these Silicon Valley bigwigs that you like, right, authorize them to fight these guys – where they find them when they're doing bad things, but it's officially not an act of the U.S. government. It is just sort of a sort of gray area sanctioned kind of act, which is what Russia is doing now. They have mm-hmm. these BS cutout things and... The difference is, you know, in a totalitarian or authoritarian country, there is no such thing as independent actors. It's like Russia saying, oh, these are just volunteers going into Ukraine or Syria. It's nonsense. These are people doing it because the government is telling them to. Same thing in China. There, there are no rogue actors. If you live in a totalitarian country, the state ultimately is responsible for everything that happens within it. But we can get into that gray space by not getting into it ourselves. But instead, and the idea of like... If you want to make sort of the – get that sort of Cold War excitement uh, for young people who want to do something cool for their country, giving them letters of Mark to go open cans of whoop-ass in the twilight struggle of cyberspace I think would be a great way to do it and at the very minimum, a lot of fun.
1: So I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, because I think we should always think about next generations of war as primarily about fun and the movies that we can make about it. Well – The glamour of war is one of the reasons why young men tend to sign up for these things. And the frontal lobe is not finished when you're an 18 or 19-year-old male and you make lots of decisions the nation may need you to make that a 40-year-old wouldn't be able to muster the energy to do.
0: Right. But my point is I'm not trying to glamorize war. I'm trying to glamorize the service for America that America needs to fight these challenges that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think we should game a lot of this out. I don't think we're thinking nearly big enough about what the next generation of of digital and cyber war look Mm -hmm. like. So I'm very open to the conversation. I think I'm against the conclusion you're landing at, but only after, you know, five more years of us deliberating about it. I think Stuxnet is a pretty good example of how these things can unfold in ways that you might not have envisioned. Mm-hmm. That obviously wasn't a letter of Mark situation. But for people who haven't seen it, by the way, watch the documentary Stuxnet, do it um, you know, with a a glass of whiskey and late at night when you don't have to go anywhere the next day because it'll it'll overwhelm your brain for the next 12 hours. But Stuxnet uh, about the attack on an Iranian um, facility in 2011, 2012 is pretty dang scary because yeah. of the ways that it ended up unfolding unpredictably. But I think the real big reason why this is probably not a good idea is because of the problems of attribution. Mm-hmm. I don't think you want a world to unfold where we have lots more actors in this space because when a country a or party non-state actor a attacks country b they may well not actually be country a doing it it might be country x who made right. it look like country A was doing it and if you have a much bigger n if you have a much bigger number of actors the likelihood of having retaliation and response and counter response and all of a sudden your six chess moves into something before you realize a didn't attack b to begin it none of it matters by then we're already hatfields and mccoys and and people have been shooting at each other in a bunch of directions so So I think I'm against it, but I think we should game it out because what we're doing now is not forward-thinking it. No,
0: I think that's a perfectly fine point. I just think it wildly um, underestimates the coolness of letters of Mark, and I just want to be clear about that.
1: I think part of this is you you like saying
0: it. I do, Um, and I like, you know, the the unusual spelling. All right, so let's switch gears and talk about something like we're not going to do too much rank punditry, but so is is Congress, by which I mean both the House and the Senate, is is going to do anything this year? No. Okay,
1: cool. God, we covered that. I've been I've been out of the I've been off the continent for over a week, so maybe something's changed. But yeah. In general, anytime you ask me that question, I've been here thirty-nine months. Um, Feels like it, forty. I gotta it, tell you. It, <laughs> thanks. Uh, it, it, I've been here f- thirty-nine months and. Any week or month you would have asked me, is Congress going to get something done? Um, My bet would be no, and it's almost always been right. And that's not going to change anytime soon. The institution is fundamentally dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And in an election year, um, people are mostly already at the place where they're not trying to solve problems. Uh, They're trying to game out two steps from now. When a particular problem isn't solved, how can you blame somebody else? That's pretty much what Congress does.
0: So uh,
1: are the Republicans going to hold the House in the midterms? I wouldn't think so. Uh, I've seen futures markets betting recently has it at 60 to 65 percent dem takeover. Um, It seems to me that it's probably higher than that.
0: How much more complicated does your life get as a – not your life because your life is plenty complicated as it is – as a generic Republican senator, so to speak, assuming that – my understanding is that the math, it's almost impossible for the Republicans to lose the Senate just because of the nature of the races that we're looking at, right? Or I think it's much more I think, unlikely. Yeah, much more unlikely. You know, I, I, I should, of all people as the host of the Remnant podcast, always acknowledge it can always be worse. But <laughs> um, uh, let's assume the Republicans hold on to the Senate. How difficult does life get for the
1: Republicans in the Senate because of the republic, uh, the Democrats taking the House? Yeah, I'm genuinely not trying to duck the question, but I, I'm just being honest. Um, I don't understand what motivates most of the people who serve in Congress right now, because okay. I think we have generational crises. We're not dealing with them. There are very few people that are serious about wanting to deal with them. So I don't know why, they, why most people who are here are doing what they're doing, because most people want to pretend that Congress mostly works and they mostly have a job that's legitimate. And that's not true. Mm. I was born in 1972, there was, you know, a big budget law passed in 1974. And for four years from 1974 to 1978, when I was two to six years old, we had a budget process in this country. Since 1978, 39 years, this will be the 40th year, there have only been four budgets in Washington in 39 years, where you've spent at least a third of the public's money through any process that's in any way transparent. 35 of 39 years, you get to the end of a fiscal year, and you lie to people and you say, there's a binary And the binary choice is we have to shut down the government and fund nothing, or we have to grow the government without any prioritization or any accountability. And they do that every year. They've done it 35 of 39 years. It's complete BS. We should pass a long-term defense budget, and we should say, here's what the budget trajectory is going to be for DOD for the next 10 years, and we're going to get that out of the way right now because it's the most important first purpose of government. And next year, we'll reevaluate it. And maybe the DOD budget number should go up a half a percent or down a half a percent. But here's basically the trajectory. of DOD. And then we should fight about the second and the third and the fourth priorities. We don't do that. And most people here don't want to do that. They want to do something that's crisis driven in the middle of the night where they're not accountable. So I I would think if you believed stuff and you're a Republican in the Senate, it's really much more complicated and much scarier to have a Speaker Pelosi than a Speaker Ryan when you're cutting this middle-of-the-night sausage deal. But lots of the people seem really content with middle-of-the-night sausage deals, and I don't know how much long-term vision for the country drives many of them.
0: So I don't want to be a broken record about this, right? So, but I I think you agree with me that part of the problem that we are facing, part of the problem that drives what you're just talking about, and I'm not gonna get into the budget process further than we already have. Isn't my, it that my bad. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine, you know. We're an ecumenical podcast, we have to have some wonkery here. But as a historian guy, um, I think that's your official title That's what it says on my card. Isn't isn't the the real problem here just simply that the founding fathers were wrong? In this sense. I don't if you had told James Madison, right, or Alexander Hamilton. That the Congress would not be a jealous guardian or custodian of its rights privileges and 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 power, you would have thought you were crazy, right, right. Um, and it turns out that there is something going on, and what what 's weird to me about it, and this is a real difficult thing for me to get my head around articulating and I think i 'm right, but i can 't quite figure out exactly why it is right, right, in the sense that i my own view is, is a, a, one of the core insights of conservatism properly understood is this idea that human nature has no history, right? That we were all born starting back with the factory preset of what humanity has always been born with, right? And the founding fathers believed that. They believed, you know, they believed that human nature was flawed, we're not angels, all that kind of stuff. And they grounded their construction of the government based upon this assumption that people and institutions would want to protect their own power and, and all of the rest. And it stopped being true. And so, I mean, I think part of the problem, at least with the House side and some of the Senate side, is that a lot of politicians on the, both the left and the right are more interested in being pundits than they are being legislators. Yep. And that's a mess. How we got to an instru- incentive system where people run for public office so that they can be regular guests on Morning Joe or Fox and Friends, that's effed up. And and I don't know how you f- fix that. Right. I mean, because most of the, most of your colleagues actually have no institutional memory of what what it's like to actually be a legislator. Right. I like Cory Gardner a lot. I don't get me wrong. But like when Sessions changed that rule about weed, he freaked out and demanded that the federal government, the, the executive branch fix this public policy problem. And here's this guy who's a legislator, you know, and he's saying, you know, he could actually write a law, you know, but. The impulse on the legislative side is not to write laws. It is to lobby the executive branch or the permanent, permanent bureaucracy to do policy by fiat and because that is easier and it gets yeah. you more TV hits. And yeah. I think it's weird.
1: Yeah, it's really weird. So... Um if the great secular motivators are money, power, fame, and sex, you'd think that people who were seeking political office would be motivated more by power. But I think you're right. A bunch of people are motivated more by a desire for fame, which is, is strange and surprising. And the kind of power in a, it is. In a country that emphasizes – fame more than almost anything. But I, you know, I'm a strategy consultant by background. And so I used to work at Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and Company. And one of the only things I'm good at is interviewing people when I don't know anything, I can go and sort of find a way to get lots of information out of people relatively quickly. And so when I got elected in 2014, I went and interviewed some senior Obama folks at the White House. And I didn't think we were going to agree on policy issues. But I just wanted to understand institutionally, why did they think DC didn't work? And why was right. the Senate not working, etc? And I, I asked one of the rookie questions you always asked, what big surprises have you discovered that you wouldn't have expected before you got here? And I had two senior Obama people immediately say something to me that was almost verbatim, a quote I'd heard from senior uh, Bush, 43 White House folks. And they said, the thing that surprises me more about this job than anything else is when a senior senator of the majority party at that point of pre twenty fourteen, a Democrat comes to me and asks us to do something by executive order or regulation, saying that's a seventy-thirty issue. Yeah. And we say, Senator, you have the gavel, that's a seventy-thirty issue. We're not even sure it's constitutionally legal for us to do it. This is executive overreach, we think, but just set that aside for a second, why would you not want to do this 70-30 thing? And they said, oh, oh, absolutely, you're right. It's a seventy-thirty issue. But the seventy percent, they just want the outcome. And if I can be the blessed Feet that bring good news, and I can call them and tell them you're going to do it by executive order. All the people in my state or my district, they're going to be happy that I delivered the good news. But the 30%, they're going to be pissed. And I'd rather have them be hacked off at you than at me. You're a nameless, faceless bureaucrat. And so incumbency became a really, really powerful thing. That's weird. So I don't think the founders were wrong about much. They certainly weren't wrong about human nature. But they didn't think that people would want to be in D.C. for their whole life, like this is the center of the universe. They wanted limited government because they really thought the place where you're raising your kids or where you're a member of the Rotary Club or where you're designing the next widget or the next app, that that would be the compelling place you'd want to be. And there are a whole bunch of people right now whose local communities are hollowed out enough that being in D.C. feels like a really compelling way to be at the center of the universe. I just... I don't think D.C.'s that interesting, Mm -hmm. and I don't think the founders wanted it to be that interesting, and I think that's some product of the moment we're going through where the digital revolution and the changing nature of work is hollowing out place for a lot of people. So D.C. feels more like a place than the place a lot of people come from, and the founders certainly didn't anticipate that problem. Yeah. That, That
0: does offer a great segue for me to bring up Donors Trust, who's our sponsor this week. If you use your charitable dollars to support freedom, You should know about Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. A donor-advised fund with Donors Trust lets you simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and add an extra layer of privacy, all with a partner that understands your values. With the recent tax law changes, many experts are recommending donor-advised funds, whatever those are. (laughs) I'm just kidding. And with good reason. Donor-advised funds act as your own private charitable savings account. Give now, take your tax benefit, and contribute later according to your schedule. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services. But Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. So, if you go to donorstrust.org slash dingo to access your free six reasons to use a donor advised fund guide and see for yourself why experts are recommending this fast growing tool for charitable givers, remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus two additional ebooks to help you identify principle driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, and I believe it is, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. So visit DonorsTrust.org dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org dingo. You know, it's funny. Uh, there is a among my sort of libertoid, anti Leviathan state right wing friends, there is a long standing theory that one of the things that fueled the growth of big government was air conditioning. Yeah. Because right? uh, it's kind of a myth that the founders picked Washington D. It is a myth that the founders picked Washington D.C. because it has the climate of what I imagine Al Sharpton's armpit to be like, um, but it is. Uh, Hang on, bingo! I had that one too. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but it is it is a terrible place in the summer. the The British embassy in May would decamp for Maine and not come back until September. Um, throughout much of the 19th century, and and Michael Barone writes in his book Our Country that it wasn't until. That through the, through the 1960s, if you wanted to go to a nice restaurant, you had to drive to Baltimore because D.C. wouldn't have nice restaurants. And that provincialism, right, of D.C., I think was a great feature. And it's losing that as D.C. becomes more cosmopolitan. It's the place to sort of hang out and, and be famous. And, right. I, it, and I, don't, I have no idea how you fix that. But I think it's a, it's, a, it's a
1: serious problem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, five of the seven richest counties in the country are the suburbs of D.C. A river of money flows to this place, and therefore it becomes a compelling place that a lot of people don't want to leave. Uh, our founders certainly envisioned a world where you would do public service as a service and for a time, and you'd want to go home. Obviously, I'm right. zealously in favor of term limits, and they're also not going to pass anytime soon. Tom Coburn might be successful with some of his Convention of the States uh, stuff, so it could happen in a bottom-up way, but it's not going to come from here Uh, sadly. But I think bigger point, you combine those accidental characteristics of D.C. that make it more compelling to many people over time with the basic fact that we just haven't done civics for two generations. Right. And so most people can't distinguish between civic things that should unify us that are superior to the subordinate policy things we might disagree about. I'm the second most conservative guy in the Senate by voting record. That's on um, your bingo card, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's strange how many people believe that if you're not just a partisan shill, yeah. that then you must not actually be conservative. Right. And the idea of identifying a political philosophical set of commitments and policy commitments with one party, that's just a strange um, sort of anti-American founding way to view the world. We're supposed to be skeptical of any majoritarian faction. Madison wanted all of us to think of ourselves as a credo minority, because you probably are. If you believe anything big and interesting, the the case is probably that most people wouldn't agree with you. And so you want to defend other people, other minority communities, other ideological groups' rights to be wrong? And that's why we want a small and limited government. And we haven't done that for a long time. So there's a whole bunch of people who aspire to majoritarianism. I don't. I aspire to a whole bunch of groups that are so small that we come together to affirm First Amendment values. And then we go back to the places where we're from, and you have really vigorous debates over dinner. Right.
0: Right. I mean, that's a big part of my explanation. You know, the the two thinkers I was most indebted to for this book I have coming out in a couple weeks— were Deirdre McCloskey and and Douglas North, who ironically couldn't stand each other and completely disagree with each other, but I actually think there's a synthesis there. Deirdre McCloskey says, sort of getting to your civics point, that one of the things that made liberal democratic capitalism possible was just the language we used about freedom, individual sovereignty, sort of all the Lockean rhetoric, the idea that innovation is a good thing, right? That was all sort of uh, what Deirdre McCloskey calls the bourgeois... Virtues of the bourgeois revolution, and 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 North argues that no, what creates this miracle of Western democratic capitalism or liberal democratic capitalism is institutional pluralism, where you get enough separate sort of, you know, I always I like to compare it to, um, in a sort of artificial reefs, right, where you have to get this rich enough ecosystem, where uh, the, the 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 rules of the game become a matter of survival for everybody, because you never know who's going to get into power until it becomes this um, sort of rich thing that uh, sort of has path dependence and and works on its own. And we don't teach kids to be grateful for this country. We don't teach kids to be grateful for anything, right? And, you know, gratitude is the opposite of entitlement. And we teach a lot of kids to be entitled to a lot of stuff. And on the partisans thing, you know, I mean, I guess we should do a little...
1: Trumpism stuff, and then I'll let you go. Um, Before you go there, let me just underscore, and this is, again, not pandering because I know your audience has heard you on gratitude, but your riff on that is so good and important because it does reset the mind to why conservative, we could debate all the different ways and subgroups about what the term means, but if you know that the world is broken and messy, when you understand all the blessings that you have, you wanna conserve them. And the reality is the world has always been broken and messy. And healthy, wise people become more conservative over time because they get more grateful when they see the complications of the world. I I huddled in secret with a bunch of North Korean refugees uh, two times over the last couple of weeks. And you know a a number of them happened to be Christians. And so I was asking particular questions about whether they ever got to assemble for worship. And they were talking about how they might share texts or how they might do this, or how they might use their cell phones. But when you brought up the idea of assembly, everybody... And these are two small rooms, but Mm -hmm. I did this twice... Everybody in both rooms just immediately begins to bawl and sob about, of course, there was no way they could ever assemble. One guy said one thing about how he and two other married couples, six total people, had one time gone to the mountains and sung a few hymns and scared to death they were going to be slaughtered at any moment for doing it. And there's no one. I care a lot about theology. I care about theological particularity. I want to have debates about theology. But there's no one who believes anything who wouldn't have said, I want those people to be able to assemble what a blessing that we have freedom of assembly, right. not just religion and press and speech and uh, protest, but assembly. And when you when you see the world where there isn't assembly, man, you're grateful. Yeah. Sorry, but yeah. No, no, look, I agree with that entirely. It. And,
0: and it's sort of a Hayekian point. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in embedded and hidden knowledge, right, and that most of the customs and institutions that we've developed over a really long time contain thousands of generations of trial and error. You know, if you just think about all of the mistakes that were made to get us to French cuisine, you know, that, you know, the food poisoning and the, you know, the, oh, you can't, or the, you know, you just can't eat that or whatever. And, and yet you, every generation is taught these things that are invested with immense amounts of knowledge that we just think that's the way the world is. And one of the things I always like to ask kids is, um, how far back in time can you go before you are completely useless? Right, like, if, if do you know how to like field dress a moose? You know, do you know how to like make? Can you make bread? Do you know how to like, like, like literally like grow wheat? And you probably do, but I do have a workout t shirt that just says "I heart gluten,"
1: so you are speaking <laughs> my love language now.
0: <laughs> Talk about pandering, and um, but it's an amazing thing that most of us live on this tiny, thin bubble of Western civilization, where almost everything that we have inherited. Is stuff that we have no idea how it works we don 't know how maybe one in one in a million people in America could could create a computer from just spare parts you know i mean it 's like or maybe a one in ten thousand you know, but almost all the stuff that we have was created through through sort of the the, the wisdom of markets, the sort of eye pencil kind of thing. Yeah. And we look at this stuff and we don't say, wow, that's awesome. This is a great thing to be grateful for. Um, we think, my God, why doesn't, you know, my – the f- camera on my freaking phone, which can talk to space, have more megapixels, right? And it's just it's an amazing amount of ingratitude that is sort of baked into the cake, the sense of expectation that all our wants and desires are going to be f- sort of fulfilled. So anyway uh, –
1: I'm sorry for ranting. You're um you handed to the president and I interrupted you. Sorry. Yeah, no, and I
0: I'm sure I, I, half the listeners are I am sure relieved that you <laughs> interrupted me and the other half were dismayed. Uh so uh, just to set this up for readers for listeners, Maya, uh, we'll put the relevant pieces up on the show notes. I got into uh so Rich Lowry, my 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 boss and fearless leader at National Review, wrote this piece basically saying sort of echoing arguments made by Henry Olson and Sean Trendy and others that that Trump isn't all that unusual a Republican president that Republican presidents have always combined populism and conservatism to 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 both get elected and also to sort of sustain their coalition once in office and um And the way Rich wrote the piece for Politico, it sounded like he was really sort of taking dead aim at conservative Trump critics. I don't know if Rich has responded yet. And I should say at the outset, I have nothing but respect and admiration and gratitude for Rich, because he runs a magazine that lets people disagree and have these arguments, and I think these arguments are essential on that right. And... But... So, I, I actually have my LA Times column today, which is about taking aim at this idea that You can't just say because Trump uses populism and conservatism, he's no different than Reagan. I think that's a really bad argument when it's done, at least in that simplistic form, which you see a lot. And then Ramesh Panuru and I co-wrote a response that we ran on NRO, making the point that it is all the more essential in this day and age and in this moment for conservatives to support Donald Trump when he's right, but to criticize him when he's wrong and to maintain, more importantly... To maintain both, both in theory and in practice, the fact that the conservative movement or that conser- intellectual conservatism upholds certain ideas that are not contingent upon an electoral cycle and are not right or wrong depending or not on whether Donald Trump agrees with them, and I think Rich would agree with me on all that. This is all very nuanced disagreement, but I'm just curious since you're on the you're in the the fighting pits um,
1: on this stuff, uh, where you come down on these various controversies. Yeah. So your last, so first of all, I just, when I was flying back from China, I saw um, that you have this debate going with Rich and I've only uh, scanned it. So I'm not fully up to speed, but I would say that one of the things that feels strange about how the president is a proxy for everything good or evil in any debate or policy right, right, policy wrong, is how many people just live short termist. And I think that our habits of media consumption, just the very word news, news is contrasted with Olds or right, enduring right, right. or something. There's an immediacy about the way that we talk about everything that's hugely distracting from solving the real problems that are before us. I think at, at the level of civic engagement and, and community, we have rapidly evaporating social capital. Mm-hmm. Families are in collapse. Neighborhoods are evaporating. Jobs are getting shorter duration. There is a loneliness crisis in the country. Arthur Brooks, since we're sitting in AEI, the, the stuff he does on friendship, there's been almost a half of the number of American friends from just over three to just under two in the last 25 years. There are big problems in American life and there are big disruptions in the economy that we haven't thought through the disrupted nature of the future of work. There are huge policy problems in Washington. And when when Trump, you have to be all for or all against Trump every time he tweets, that just implies in some way that he's focused on the long term or that CNN's critiques of him are focused on the long term. And neither of those things are true. Right. The, the president's critiques of many things in 2015, 2016, maybe distilled to the establishment has no idea what it's doing. And Washington isn't urgent and isn't serious about solving long term problems. There are a whole bunch of people who have conventions and norms and offices. And, you know, uh, Calvin would have said, you know, lace uh, fashion. Um, They have all these accoutrements of knowledge and wisdom. They don't actually have a plan. The President Trump, candidate Trump's critiques of all that stuff was right. Yeah. He was right about most of it. Now, the question is, what is his plan? Mm -hmm. And the vast majority thinks he doesn't have any plan. I mean, he tells people that he kind of enjoys rolling bombs out there on Saturday mornings and getting the media to go crazy, like a a cat's paw, getting people to get spun up into a frenzy. And frankly, you know, if, if it's Saturday and you're on the way to a football game with your kids, I get why lots of America thinks A lot of it's kind of funny. The president's witty and he gets people to chase some random ball. And look, a shiny thing over here. But if the world is reducible to a Trump versus CNN debate about who's more long-term focused... I'm not on either side of that debate. And I think that's one of the problems with the way we're using the president as a proxy for these things, is that we don't have an America 2022, and I'm trying to pick non-election years, (laughs) America 2023, America 2025, America 2027. We don't have any plans, and we need some. Government doesn't work. The disrupted nature of work means we need kids when they're 14, 16, 18, 20, to know they're going to probably get disintermediated out of their jobs a whole bunch of times in their life, and for the first time ever, everybody's going to have to be a knowledge worker. Everybody should assume when they're 45 or 50 or 55 years old, their job is going to cease to exist, and they're going to need to be able to be nimble enough and resilient and gritty enough to be retrained. We're not talking about any of that long-term stuff. And I think that's that's tragic. No, that's a huge problem. I agree with all that entirely. I mean, you
0: know, as as someone who is... This sounds more crass than it is, because you know th- this has not been a great time for um, the Jonah Goldberg business, but I'm sort of in the Jonah Goldberg business, right I mean that's sort of how I look at my my business model to the extent I have one, right is I write for a lot of different places and I write books and I do all these kinds of things and and I'm not complaining about how Trump has been bad for this, but my point is, is that what i what I'm trying to do when I try to explain to people why I, I take some of the positions that I do on this stuff is that I'm making a long-term bet, right? That it's a long-term bet in integrity. It's a long-term bet. You know, one of the things I always like to ask people, is like, what, literally, what could a Democratic president do that would, that that people who defended everything that Donald Trump has done leave room for them to be able to criticize the Democrat without seeming like a hypocrite? Mm. And there are a few things. I mean, like, a lot of people pointed out, well, you know, Giving giving Iran a third of a trillion dollars and and giving them putting them on a bath getting a a nuclear weapon that's a good answer right I mean there are things that there are a lot of good things that Trump has done but there's the way he conducts his presidency and the way he approaches these things as the sort of escape monkey from the cocaine study is it create and never mind paying off porn stars and all of the rest I'm making an investment in the very least in consistency I think that there. As a conservative, having a safe harbor and sticking to a line of argument that scummy be- scummy sexual behavior from politicians is bad, whether they have an R or a D after their name, doesn't mean there aren't differences in kind about the different kind of behavior, but that this idea that one can have different moral standards based on a sliding scale of partisanship, I, I just can't... I personally can't do that. And people think I'm sanctimonious and all the rest. and I'm not. It just... I just, I don't think it's a good way to go through life.
1: I don't, you know, you're just supposed to tell the truth, you know, as you see it. Right. uh, strong agree. And that's another way of saying that a whole bunch of people have already conceded the point that a republic of virtue doesn't matter, and not in a sanctimonious way. But just the question is, in a republic, if you believe the center of the world is non-governmental, and what government exists to do is maintain a framework for all those non-governmental places, then you think the strength of the republic in the next generation depends on us believing in the fact that government is supposed to preserve spaces for people to be good, and to do right. good things, and to innovate, and to create all the community thickness that gives life meaning and hope and purpose. And once you're at a place where you just decide that a republic of virtue doesn't matter anymore, well then it just becomes a a partisan, you know, experiment where you can always do confirmation bias about everything. If if there's a rumor about a democrat and I'm supposed to be a republican then the democrat is obviously the devil because the rumor is aligned with who they are and if the republican does something wrong we're not supposed to care about it. I don't think most Americans deep down think either of these parties have any long-term vision to solve our problems. So I don't know why people would want to invest that much in saying good versus evil. That line runs between these two lame political parties. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right. I know we've kept you very long and you're a busy senator and all that kind of stuff. So we should probably wrap up. I do have a factual question for you. Does Nebraska have any kind of mythological
1: Sasquatch type creature in it? Wow. Uh, so we have a thing called Elephant Hall, uh, uh, where, you know, in Nebraska millennia past, this is at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, we've essentially got a museum of some of the, the early, early large creatures, uh-huh. uh, to quote Wolf, would have been fun, but nothing, not, not sort of a wolf-like No Loch Ness Monster, no, no Bigfoot, no. nothing we, like we've that. We've got no uh, creation myth about uh-huh. why Nebraska dominates football because of something about what Greek god we were born from 500 uh-huh. years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, and you ask why? Well, because, you know, one of the things that put this podcast on the map was reading Bigfoot Erotica, and I was thinking that if maybe if you had some sort of... A crazy, weird animal—we, you know, or creature out there—we could see if such a thing exists, you know. And and I could put the final nail in the coffin of your career, so that you would actually become the president of the American Enterprise Institute, which is what I would very much like to see. But again, I understand you've got bigger fish to fry. Um, is Bigfoot
1: erotica what those sketches are on the wall behind you? Um, actually, you
0: want to see my tattoo?
1: Nope. <laughs> I, I'm out of here. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Senator. Great to see you.
0: All right, so the senator has left the building. It was uh, it was nice to have a uh, uh sass back in here. I mean, particularly since the the carnage of episode 11.
2: What'd you think, Jack? I was disappointed that he did not have a working knowledge of Nebraska cryptids. Uh as someone who is pretty... Explain for listeners what cryptids
0: are, I don't I do not mean to go full pedant here, but I mean, this might require some explanation.
2: I mean, I I thought that a cryptid was just something a term that people had familiar with. A cryptid is it's just a shorthand term for cryptozoological entity. So like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. Um and apparently nothing in Nebraska, but he's wrong about that. I've seen maps of every of each state's most uh famous or infamous cryptid and Nebraska definitely has one. So
0: Amazing that he was even elected.
2: Yeah, really. Uh, I mean,
0: you know, my understanding and I could be wrong about this. I'm open to correction from our great and knowledgeable listeners is that for a while uh Panda bears were considered in the West basically to be mythological sort of cryptid creatures alongside
2: unicorns and pegasi, sort of like maybe they existed, maybe they didn't. Um, oh, yeah. There are all sorts of uh, creatures that Marco Polo reported in China that his European compatriots did not believe actually existed. Yeah. The Komodo dragon was, I think, the most famous example. But cryptids, cryptids are very important and he should, he should know more about them, I think. I think that's right. Um, you know, at some point, we have to get Mike Medved on here
0: because Michael Medved is a Sasquatch believer. Really? Yes. And um, uh, he gets... Uh, Hugh Hewitt was trolling him on Twitter a few weeks ago or a month ago. I don't know. Time means nothing to me now. <coughs> and, um, about You've, you've had Big, too much melange. Yeah, about Bigfoot stuff. And, um, and Medved got all sort of, well, actually... I just find that there's a preponderance of the evidence that would suggest that a, as of yet undiscovered hominid, uh, would exist in the Northwest Forest, blah, 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 blah.
2: So I think at some point we need to have a full-on Finding Bigfoot, you know, episode of The Remnant. Oh, 100%. I mean, maybe we can get Bigfoot himself or herself, the the um, f- the most famous bigfoot footage is of a female bigfoot so i don't want to gender discriminate against uh, in the bigfoot community how
0: you how
2: how you have any idea how that bigfoot identifies is beyond me i mean oh, well it's possible that bigfoot bigfeet are uh, still working with uh cis normative head- yes they okay. they 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 could be in a sort of Heteropatriarchal society still. That's my working assumption. Um
0: just so listeners get some of the flavor of the rich, intoxicating atmosphere that is inside the the remnant studio, Senator Sass brought with him, I will not name him, uh, but one of his aides. And when I when Sass asked me why I asked about, you know, mythological creatures in Nebraska, and I explained that it's because, you know, what put this podcast on the map was the the Bigfoot erotica discussions. I thought maybe we could do, you know, the weird, you know, saber tooth kangaroo erotica search or whatever for Nebraska and have him read it. But no. Um, But anyway, his aide, who's sitting here, kind of had the same expression on his face that Ron Burgundy had right after he jumped into the bear pit. (laughs) Letting Sass do this podcast at all. Anyway, uh, speaking of this podcast, I want to thank Eric, our friend Eric Erickson, who has a um, subtle and nuanced post up. Uh, called Your Podcast Sucks. And he uh, listed this podcast as a podcast worth listening to because we have organic, real conversations here and they're not scripted out, which is absolutely true. Um, I've never had more than three or four lines of show notes that I almost always forget to consult. And I'm always, uh, for good or for ill, uh, winging it in here. And, And there was a lot of stuff about audio and all that kind of stuff, which I pay no attention to because that's Jack's job. But we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I also want to let people know that we are, that I'm going to be speaking at Denison University
2: in Ohio um, on April 11th. My stomping grounds. Yes. Um, you'll, speaking of cryptids, you'll, beware of the Ohio grass man. He is, he is known to appear in that part of the state. He's a, he's a Bigfoot, a type of Bigfoot. Really? But he's made of grass. No, he just appears mostly in grass, as a long, tall grass, as opposed to forests, as Sasquatch is known to do. I see. Um,
0: okay. <laughs> and um, other than that, uh, you guys should check us out on Twitter at uh, Jonah Remnant, um, or the send us an email the remnant remnantpod at gmail.com, or go to Jonah for the show notes and whatnot. Oh, and I probably made a grave mistake. I am. Um, so Amazon has this program called Vine, where uh people who actually promise to read the book will do reviews of the book and i um I know better than to actually respond to sort of one star reviewers, but these people are actually you know presumably read the book, and the first three were all five star reviews um, from Vine readers, and then the fourth one was this somewhat ridiculous one star review. And I did a quick sort of response to it. Actually, I did a response at the Amazon page, but then I did a longer one at uh, com. It's not like you people haven't been warned that I'm going to be doing more and more book stuff around here. And other than that, uh, stay tuned. We're going to have another podcast this week uh, with Ross Dowfit. If you have questions for Ross, I will ask him about the Papal Ninja issue um, because it's near and dear to my heart, and he knows about my position on this. In fact... Uh, he has hinted that maybe they actually do have ninjas already, <laughs> uh, but that's neither here nor there for right now. Anyway, tune in uh, soon again. Thanks. Oh, and yeah, uh, reviews. You know, uh, subscribe. Yada yada yada. Fill in the blank. Thank you all very much, and talk to you soon.
1: I did it,